We come this morning to our sermon passage. So one of the things I want to do every August as a church is kind of pause and for that month of August focus in on why as a church we exist. Because history and experience tells us that it's very easy for a church once it gets started to get, for lack of a better description, off mission. Things start happening and the, the, the attention of a church or the identity of a church can turn to other things. And suddenly they feel confident that they have a name because they've go, done good deeds in the community. And that's, that's why we're great. Or we have this great community function and that's what everybody knows us as. Um, or, more insidious, the church will become more or less a political block that is angling for votes for this thing or that thing or this initiative or whatever. So what I want to do is every August come back to our mission, why we exist as a church, why we bother to get up on a Sunday morning and come together, what binds us together. And there's lots of things that could be said, but I like to call our church a gospel-centered church. And that's not just a statement of what matters to us, it's also kind of a prayer that we would always be a church that centers on the good news of Jesus. And we put it in our bulletin every week. It's on the back. The why we exist. We exist to proclaim and live out the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What he has done. Now gospel, you may have heard this before, is a word that literally means good news. And this is what makes the Christian faith, this is what makes following Jesus distinct in this world. It's the difference between good news and good advice. Every religion in this world, every self-help guru in this world has good advice. Every financial advisor in this world has good advice on how to be a good person. And here's the steps that you need to take to ascend some kind of ladder. And once you do my steps that I'm telling you, then you will be righteous or you will be good. What God announces to us in Christ is good news. It's the announcement of a victory won by Him that changes everything. There's a, there's a huge difference between that. Now God tells us lots of good things to do. Jesus has lots of instructions for us that lead us into good. But where it all starts is not good advice. Here's a list of things for you to do. It starts with good news. Here is what I have done. Here's what I have accomplished. So what is that gospel? It's the good news that God has worked through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to bring forgiveness, transformation, and hope to our world. And we believe that this is good news, not just for people that are far from God. It is good news for people who are far from God, that they can come to Him. We believe that this is good news also for those who have believed in Jesus their whole life. We never move on from the gospel. And this good news is so transformational that it's good news to our city, even if they have not come into the doors of our church, because it transforms how we live our life. And it's good news for this world, because as I prayed earlier, God will not rest until the curse of sin has been rolled back completely. And he has remade all things in a new heaven. And new earth. Well, what I want to do is, is focus in on each of those. How the good news is good news for the lost, for the found, for the city, 
for the world. And this morning, we're going to look distinctly. How is the gospel good news for the lost, for those who are far from God? And we're going to do that by hearing from the parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. So it's printed for you in your bulletin if you need it or if you have your Bible. This is one of Jesus' most famous parables, commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And he is now found. So they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have spoken through this passage to so many hearts across the millennia. Not just to the people that heard Jesus there, but to all of us who have heard this through the Gospel of Luke. So I pray this morning, as we hear from your word... As I preach, that you would move by your Spirit to show us the glory of Jesus, to show us how the gospel is good news for the lost. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I say something like, I start a story with, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you know what to expect next, right? If you're a Star Wars fan, this is a Star Wars story. You're going to hear about the Skywalkers. It's going to be a whole thing. Or if I say, uh, once upon a time, you know what to expect next, right? That's how fairy tales start. So you're going to hear about dragons or witches that live in gingerbread houses or something like that. Well, I ask that because when Jesus starts this story in Luke 15, the way he starts it, it triggers something for everybody that was there listening. And they think they know what to expect next. Notice how he starts it. There was a man who had two sons. This was like me saying in a galaxy, long, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or once upon a time. For people who had their imagination absolutely steeped in the Old Testament, who had heard the stories of how God had worked through their people over generations and generations, this would have brought a number of things to mind right away. 
Because I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but so much of the Old Testament is a story of broken families and oftentimes uh, difficult relationships, to say the least, between brothers. Think about it. Cain and Abel. <laughs> That's a difficult relationship between brothers. Think of the sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. Think of the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Think of the sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. Or later on, think of Moses and his brother Aaron and their sister Miriam. They were together a lot, but they had some big time crises in there as well. Or later on, the sons of David. I could keep going, but there's so many broken families and broken homes throughout the Old Testament. And there's a fascinating dynamic that worked through all these stories. And it's this, that God often chooses to continue his purposes that begin when he promises Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless this world. Essentially, Abraham, you have a descendant that is coming down the line, Jesus Christ, who will be the means of blessing for all the nations, all the families of this world. And as God is working out this promise and continuing this promise in all these broken families, what does he often do? He chooses the youngest. He chooses the most unexpected of the family to continue it on. And that was weird in the Old Testament times. I mean, it's similar to now, but um, in the ancient world, inheritance and property, they were all often primarily passed down through the oldest son. So the oldest son got most of the estate. The oldest son got most of the property, most of everything. And so when God is choosing the younger and all these things, he is proving that he is not operating by the rules of this world. He's continuing his purposes in ways that are unexpected. He often chooses those who people overlooked. And that's why I think Jesus chose to start this story this way. Because as soon as they heard, there was a man who had two sons. What they're expecting is, well, the younger the younger's the one who winds up carrying on the promise. They would have thought of their history. But what happens here in this story is the younger son that acts in absolute foolishness. We see it here. The young son loves his father's things more than he loves his father. He loves what his father can give him more than he actually loves his dad, which is why he goes to him and he does something that feels unthinkable. He asks his living father for his share of the estate. Absolute smack in the face. Absolute smack in the face. But it's more than that. It's lost on us in our society. We have nursing homes and care facilities and retirement communities. But in the ancient world, your security were your family, were your children. Who was going to care for you when you're old? Where your, your sons were. But here, the younger son is essentially saying, Dad, you're living too long. I want your stuff. You're sticking around way too long. So can you go ahead and give me my share? And not just that. Soon after... He doesn't just take, and, and, and in this world, land was passed on for generations and generations within one family. What does this son seem to immediately do? Sell off the entire part of his estate. 
his property, and he skips town. He loves his father, his father's things, far more than he loves his father. And he takes off for what it says, a distant country. He didn't just take his share of the estate and move across the street. He took all the wealth he could get his hands on and he left his father behind. And in that distant country, he lives a life that I think a lot of us have dreamed of at one time or another. He has pockets that are full of money and he can do whatever he wants to. He doesn't have any of the social responsibilities because nobody knows him. So he's starting fresh. Pockets full. Living a life that I think a lot of us have dreamed of doing whatever he wants and then he finds out what a lot of us have found out. That that kind of life only uses you up and wears you out. In verse 14 it tells us that he had spent everything. Spent everything. And it certainly meant he had spent more than his money. He had spent himself. He had spent every part of what made him him. Spent it all. And that's why this uh, parable, by the way, has traditionally been called the prodigal son. Prodigal is not a word that means lost. A lot of times, that's what I always thought. Prodigal just meant lost. This is the lost son. Prodigal means somebody that spends extravagantly. That spends in a way that makes sense to nobody else. Like they're not looking at uh, <laughs> long term or anything. They just spend extravagantly. And he's doing this at the wrong time because as soon as he has spent all of his money and he spent himself, a famine hits. And the only work this man can find, this Jewish man can find, is helping on this farm, apparently, with pigs. Now, I don't think any of us in here have Jewish background. But for a Jewish man, especially in the first century, that is an absolute no-no. This is the worst thing he could probably imagine growing up in his father's house that you could be assigned to do working with pigs. They were seen as inherently unclean, and I don't just mean dirty. So he's working with pigs, and not only is he working with the pigs, you may have noticed, he is longing to eat what the pigs eat. He can't, or he'll get fired, I guess. But he's staring at the pig's food, and he's saying, guys, that looks fantastic. But nobody will help him. Nobody will help him. He's found himself empty in his wallet, empty in his stomach, empty in his heart. He is worn out. He has been given the world and he's lost it all. How well this describes humanity, describes us. Think about all the good things as humanity that we've been given, that we're created in God's image with inherent dignity and worth. We've been gifted with so many skills and so many things. We are put into this beautiful world and we're surrounded by beauty. Yet from the very beginning of the human story, we have turned away from this. We have done this exact thing, loved the things of our Father more than our Father, grabbed all we can and fled as far from him as we can get. And we find ourselves in the muck of life trying to hustle to prove our worth and it leads nowhere. But the prodigal son is not the end of the story. That brings me to my next section, the prodigal father. The prodigal father. 
This son looks around and he realizes he has spent everything he could possibly spend. He has hit rock bottom. So what's he start doing? He comes to his senses. That's what it literally says. He comes to his senses and he starts to think, all right, I could go back home. My father seems like a nice guy. I've already broken this relationship, so there's no going back. But I can craft an I'm sorry speech that is good enough to get at least back in the household as a servant. And so that's what he starts to do. That's what he starts to do. He starts crafting this apology. Verse 18 shows us what he's drawn together. And this is a really good apology, by the way. Verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is a good apology. He takes responsibility for what he's done. This is not him saying, I'm sorry for how I made you feel. No, he's actually owning up. This is a good, crafted apology. But what we see when he starts to come home is that his father does not care how well crafted this apology is. The father does not care if his son is coming back with mixed motives or not. When his son comes into sight, the father doesn't pull out a spreadsheet and say, I need you to account for how you spent all this money in this short a time. His father doesn't ask him to stand before him and grovel or to perform an apology for him to then judge whether or not he'll forgive him and receive him back. What does his father do? His father sees him while he's far off, which means his father has been looking for him. His father has not turned his eye away from that road that leads back into town. His father sees him while he's a far way off, and he runs. He runs to him. Not to condemn him. He's not... He's not running hard so he can get there first to to get all the words of condemnation out before everybody else who in town had seen all of this happen could then condemn him too. No, he runs to him. Not to condemn him, but what? To cover him. He first covers him with his arms. He covers him with kisses. And then he covers him with his cloak. This father's heart is, as it says, filled with compassion. And a heart that is filled with compassion has no room left for condemnation. A heart that is filled with compassion has no room left for condemnation. And then the the scene turns funny to me. Because verse 21, the son has seen his father run to him. He's wrapped his arms around him. His father is weeping and crying. And the son is like, all right, here it is. My moment to shine. I'm going to start my apology. And so he does. Verse 21, he starts his apology. His father's holding him, showering him with kisses. But the father doesn't even let him finish the apology. Did you notice that? Compare it between verse 18 and verse 21. The son can't even get his practiced apology all the way out of his mouth. He's still trying to apologize And the father turns, holding his son, and yells out to everybody in his household to hear, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. That's why I call this section the prodigal father. Remember, prodigal is a word that means somebody who spends extravagantly, 
who spends all he has even when it doesn't make sense to anybody else. And that is exactly what this father does here. He spends his reputation because all of his friends know that this little boy slapped him in the face when he took his share of the estate, sold it off, and left town. But the father does not care. His son is home. His son that was dead is now alive. He spends his reputation. He spends his best meat, that fattened calf. He spends his literal clothes, his robe, his ring, his sandals. And he spends all of this on a feast for his son who had spent probably all his money feasting. It's an extravagant grace. A prodigal father. And that brings me to my last section. Our prodigal God. Our prodigal God. Stop right now. And take a moment. What comes into your mind when you think of God? Specifically this. What comes to mind when you think of how God must think of you? Do you think, or maybe not even consciously think it, but feel this way, that God must just be completely frustrated with you sometimes? Like you keep making the same mistake. You keep sinning in the same ways. You keep, uh, <laughs> you, you keep pursuing sometimes selfishness. What do you think God thinks of you? I ask that because Jesus told this story to show people what God is like. This is not primarily a story about a prodigal son. It is primarily a story about God and showing us who He is, what He thinks of us. I know you've sinned. I know you've sinned big. I have too. I have been given so many good things in this life and so many of those good things, I have squandered them. And I know how this son felt, trying to think like maybe if this time I can craft the right apology Maybe if this time I really, really mean it, it'll count. But I think what this passage is showing us, what it shows all who are far from God, is that God is not waiting for us to figure out the right apology. He is not standing far off with His arms crossed, wondering if you're going to be able to jump this high or meet this standard. The heart of our God is the heart of the Father in this story that we see here. Do you know that God delights over you? That He who created all things for His glory loves you? That He does not begrudge you needing His grace? That He is overjoyed that you have come home? That He doesn't want to pull out a spreadsheet and ask how you've squandered all the good gifts He's given to you? But that when you are turned back toward Him, He flees to you. That He delights in you. That He will not let you remain in your filth and shame. But that He will clothe you. He will declare you righteous. So that you don't need to do a single thing to prove yourself to Him. That's what I talk about when I say that the gospel is good news for the lost. It's the good news of a new record. It's in our bulletin every week that we are forgiven of sin and declared righteous because of Jesus' work on our behalf. Not because we've done a single thing. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. 
To be righteous means you've done all the right things and you've not done the wrong things, but history and experience make clear to us that we are not righteous. Even our best uh, actions have mixed motives, and our unrighteousness will pile up year after year, generation after generation. And what does God do in the face of this mess? He sends His Son into the distant country. We are in this distant country and we have spent all the good that we have been given. We are in this muck and mire. And what does God do? He sends His Son into this far country. And He runs after us to find us in our muck and mire. And though Jesus was truly righteous, though He lived in this world that is covered in spiritual darkness without sin, He wore our sin that we in God's sight, as we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, might be the righteousness of God. Jesus was executed as a criminal on a cross, a, plain, a place not just of pain, but of intense shame. And in doing that, He died on our behalf. He became sin for us. He satisfied God's uh, justice against us. He takes our bad record Away, But he doesn't just do that. As I said, he gives us a new record. He gives us his perfect righteousness. We were stuck in this distant country. We were lost. But Jesus came to spend the lavish wealth of God, not on wild living, but to spend the ultimate cost, our prodigal God, to bring us home, to find us, and to free us. In Luke 15, this is illustrated, you may have noticed, by the father clothing his son with his own robe. This, father, this son who had done everything wrong. Everything wrong. His father clothes him in his own clothing. This was the father clothing his son in his own reputation. This was the father clothing his son in his own protection. And declaring for everyone to see that this son belongs to my household. This is my boy and he is home. There's a reason why the New Testament, if you keep reading it, loves the imagery of us being clothed with Christ. Maybe you've heard that said before. Apostle Paul talks about it. Or talks about us putting on Christ. It's because it's getting at the same thing, the good news of the gospel, that we can have a new record in exchange for our bad one. Because apart from Jesus working, our, our, what we try to clothe ourselves in and cover ourselves in is in tatters. Absolute tatters, but we can be clothed with Christ. And in doing this, our God becomes prodigal. Remember, it means somebody who spins extravagantly. God treasures us, and whatever it takes to win us to Himself, He has done. So this morning, friends, put on Jesus. Put Him on. Wear Him. By faith, receive His righteousness, and stop trying to hustle for your worthiness. You don't need to. Stop resting in your own strength. Stop trusting your good works, and stop despairing in your bad ones. Receive all that God has for you in Christ with the open hands of faith. This is how the gospel is good news for those who are lost, for those who are far from God. And this is the beating heart of why our church exists. That's why, uh, why bother with a new church in Dunn. 
Because it's so easy for this message, this extravagant grace to be uh, forgotten and looked over. Part of our mission, being here in this place and being in the neighborhoods that God has placed us in and being in the homes that we belong to, is that we might be people who can look into this story and not just be moved emotionally, but allow it to transform how we are aimed toward other people. If God moves the way His Spirit often moves, then as our church develops, there are going to be scores of people that become attached to our church that have messed up big time. There are some of us in this room who have messed up big time and squandered so many good things that God has given to us. And when someone walks into this door for worship, when someone comes into the community of our church, if we're having an event or something, and they come in and they look a lot like this younger son who's done everything wrong, what are we going to do? Are we going to perhaps be annoyed? Are we going to give them a lesson on how they should have been more financially wise? Are we going to lecture them on this thing or that? No. No, not at all. At least I hope not. I pray, by God's Spirit, we do not. I pray, actually, that we be a community with this extravagant of a welcome for people when they are discovering the grace of Jesus. So pray with me here in this month of August and as we go forward that our church won't just be a social club, that our church won't just be a place that gets distracted by other things, even other good things. That what we will present to people and offer to people isn't a political platform or some ladder of success for you to you know, uh, name it and claim it. That our church won't be a place to receive advice or just good advice. That we will be a community that embodies, that proclaims and lives out this good, good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this good news. That in place of our bad record before you, we can receive the record of Jesus. That we can receive not just forgiveness, but righteousness in your, in your sight. I, I, can't, I can't get past it. It's the best thing in the world. I thank you that even though we have so often and still so often act in foolishness, that we love the things you give more than we love you, that we try to turn from you and run to a distant country to live however we want, that you can continue to chase after us, that you've won us to yourself in Christ, and that you continue to win us to yourself that your heart for us is filled with compassion and not condemnation. Make that the very center of who we are individually. Make that the very center of who we are as a church. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.